How does trauma affect memory? What biochemical changes occur in the brain following a traumatic event? Today, I talk with Mary Catherine McDonald, PhD, about these topics and others, such as tools for managing extreme stress and anxiety. She talks about something called the hope circuit. What is that? We also have a lighter conversation about the wanton misuse, really criminal misuse of terms such as PTSD and trigger. Even the word health is placed upon the chopping block. Lastly, how are the dogma around religion and psychology getting so mixed up these days? And how is it that diagnosis and identity have also gotten conflated? What's going on? My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What To Do. I am a PhD trauma researcher, college professor, author, and life coach, and I have chosen as my research specialization the field of trauma. I write and lecture and do all sorts of things in that field. And I have been doing that since about 2009. You have your PhD in philosophy. Yes. Um, I was housed in a philosophy department. So I was my PhD housed. is technically, like, yeah. <laughs> we have a bed available in the right. philosophy department. Uh, meals There's... are extra and laundry's offsite. They're, yeah, absolutely offsite. Okay. Actually, they don't, philosophers don't do laundry. You just get musty. Oh, um, <laughs> y'all don't sweat. No, we do, but it's just like you wear a blazer from like the thrift store. You're born wearing it's, a blazer. Yeah, with the elbow patches. That's awful. The whole thing, yeah. Okay, I'm glad I didn't major in philosophy. <laughs> I was kind of always multidisciplinary. So when I did my master's degree, I did psychoanalysis and philosophy at the new school. And then when I did my PhD, I did the philosophy of psychology. Oh, nice. And so kind of inherently is a unemployable <laughs> degree. Well, no, but a philosophy of psychology is important. I mean, for uh, sure. Carl Jung said the best thing about being Carl Jung is he didn't have to be a Jungian, yes. which is a commentary oh, on the philosophy that. of psychology, which totally. is like, yep. this guy Edinger is a Jungian philosopher. He said that psychology is basically doing the same thing that religion is trying to do. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that is that it morphs so easily into religiosity, yes. like so quickly. Oh man, that's fascinating. You see that in the clinical world all the Everywhere. time. Everywhere. Yeah. And you see people grasping for mm -hmm. like, this is the thing and I am the authority and I'm the person yeah. and bow down to me. And it's like, mm -hmm. fuck you, dude. Like, yeah. you and know. also from the patient perspective, this is my diagnosis. This is my altar. I will worship at it forever. Ooh. Can you say more about that? I think over-identification is a huge problem. And I think we're living in this really weird moment because we have universal access to the DSM and clinical stuff yeah. without any scaffolding and education. I think we're also uniquely at this moment obsessed with our pathologies. So people will access the DSM, they diagnose themselves, they find a piece of their behavior that they don't like or that is causing problems. And yeah. instead of fix it, they say, this is who I am. Do you see that sort of over-identification in your parent in your patients? Ooh, parents, Freudian slip. No, I actually don't. <laughs> really? Um, I think it's because of... <laughs> I want to take a little bit of credit for that. I think I don't... Um, if you're not pathologizing them. I then, just don't. Yeah. Whenever I talk to them about diagnosis, I always give them a lecture on the meaning of diagnosis. Oh, good. And that diagnosis is nothing more than a collection of observable symptoms. I wish that was mandatory. It just seems so obvious to me. I know. It's I... all it is. People have it in their head that there's like a, uh, a depression virus mm -hmm. or a gene. Right. I have anxiety. Right. I have the anxiety. Yeah. And, and now I need, just need the one thing to fix it. So yeah. I have a broken bone. Well, yeah. And it also, it implies that there's something indelibly wrong with you. Right. Yep. 
which is preposterous yep, and impossible. That's what you are. Yeah, yeah, totally. And there's this thing called differential diagnosis that mm-hmm. if, if therapists paid attention to that mm-hmm. idea that one thing can look like another thing, that yep. schizophrenia can kind of look like bipolar mania sometimes, yep. it really can. Yep. And it's hard to know. Or is yep. the person high on methamphetamine? Right. Those are three diagnoses for the same symptoms. Right, totally. You assholes. It's <laughs> totally. No, it's wild. But I think almost no one does that. Yeah, and a lot of times the people that I get are not so acute. I work with substance abuse a lot. So the people that come to me, we spend a lot of time talking about what it means to be addicted to a substance. The idea of identifying as a quote unquote addict yeah, and what that means. The conversation just sort of organically goes there. Right. A lot of time they're resistant to getting sober is because they don't want to be identified as something. And I'm like, right. look, you're not identified yeah. as anything. You're not anybody. Right. You know, you're just you. I just heard, I wish I could remember what celebrity it was. Oh, it was Miley Cyrus. And she was talking about, I don't have a problem with drinking. But <laughs> I have a problem with what I do when I'm drinking. And then she described, you know, 14 behaviors that... My favorite quote of all time was, <laughs> I don't know if I'm an addict or if I just really like cocaine. <laughs> Hard to say. <laughs> I, it was said without irony. Right, right. So anyway, what spurred you towards trauma research? When I did my master's degree, I was looking at grief and mourning. And in the course of finishing my master's degree, both of my parents died suddenly. Um, So I was living through a trauma, but that is not at all why I went on to study trauma, at least not consciously. I wanted to make a switch and look at the general psychological structure of identity when I got to my PhD program. And so I started looking at narrative and to what extent our psychology is constructed or supported by stories, which may sound like a very obvious thing, but there was a huge debate going on at the time about this. And there were a couple of- Some people were saying, Galen Strawson in particular, who is an English philosopher, was arguing that we are not, nor should we strive to be narrative, and that when we do, we actually do psychological harm. And on the other side, there's a whole host of people who are arguing that the psychology of human beings is absolutely structured narratively, both in our everyday life and also in the, in the sense of like an arc, a story arc. Why would he say that? He didn't identify as someone who was narrative as a person. And he kind of constructed this opposing modality that he called the episodic person, which is a person who see, who experiences their life in tiny time slices that are not related to each other. He's a postmodernist. Yeah. How unfortunate for him. Yeah. It's pretty incoherent when you try to apply it to a, an actual life. Sometimes when I'm talking to people about relationships or patients about relationships, let's say I'll have a guy who who wants to kind of be the man and the, mm-hmm. open the door for his girlfriend or be the knight on the white horse. And he's not getting that in the relationship and it's bothering him, mm-hmm. but he doesn't know how to name it because that's taboo to say, hey, I want to be mm-hmm. the man. Yeah, stereotypical. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so what I tell him is like, look, beneath all of the stuff is a narrative, a myth, yep. an yep. archetype that lives in your soul yes. that's not necessarily politically correct right. or helpful. Or, or politically incorrect for that yeah, matter. Right. right? Like, Whatever. Yeah. But it, it sits there. Yep. And it's more powerful than you. Yep. I'm sorry. Yep. <laughs> right. You're the conduit. Yeah. Yeah. And and here we are. Yeah. And so I do a lot in my in my work. I, I bring those types of things up because yep. they explain so I know much. It. I know it. I know it. And so to kind of dismantle the idea that there are stories at the heart of who we are didn't make sense to me at all. No. Have you read Sapiens? No. I know it's totally in fashion to say, hey, have you read Sapiens? 
<laughs> but he talks about stories and he talks about laws as being stories. Like the constitution oh, yeah. as being a story, like a stop sign is a story that we tell like, yes. Hey, this is what this means. Right. 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 So amazing. Oh, that's fascinating. I'll, yeah. have, to, I'll have to check it out. That's the only thing I remember from that whole book. That's uh, good. That's a good takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> I got heavy into this debate and then I was getting a lot of pushback and I was like, okay, I need to find something that shatters the narrative because then then we prove that the narrative is there. Trauma seemed like the perfect thing because there were all these stories in the background of my own life where you don't even realize you're telling a story until it shatters into a million pieces. The whole, you don't know what you have until you lost it type exactly. thing. Exactly. My first question then is, okay, well, what is trauma? And everything unraveled because I realized as soon as I opened that door that there was still a huge debate and still currently is in the field of psychology about what is trauma. And so I spent most of my academic career up until this point tearing apart research, being the least popular person at the APA. Why? (laughs) Because there's a lot of stuff that's still based on bad science from the 1800s. And what's the APA? American Psychological Association. And what did you tear apart and why didn't they like it? So actually, funny story, the first time I ever had a talk at the APA, uh, it was a huge room. It's really intimidating. And I was giving a lecture on phenomenology, which Mm -hmm. is the study of basically what it is like to live a certain phenomenon. So Mm -hmm. I was looking at the phenomenology of certain mental illness and making an argument that in the field of psychology, there's not enough meeting the patient where they are. There's too much still diagnosing from on high. And I was making a point about let's bring these two pieces together. This is something that the field is kind of getting wrong Mm -hmm. as a field. I wasn't talking about individual clinicians. And so I finished the talk. I feel like it's gone really well. People have been looking really engaged. And this woman shoots up her hand right away in the fridge. She's like in the front row. And I was like, oh, great. Now we're going to have a great conversation. And she said, you make me sick. Oh, my. Yeah. Because why? Because I was criticizing her field. Right. She oh. was not only a psychologist in, in a research capacity, but also practicing. Did she back up her statement with why you made her sick? She was very angry. There was not a lot of rational stuff that came out of her mouth at that time. We are now not good friends, but when we bump into each other at conferences, it's great because she came to know over time that I wasn't trying to take her on or call out individuals, but that I was trying to t- tear apart the system that is broken. So the, and then I go to philosophy conferences and they're like, why are you talking about psychology? You're not a philosopher. And then when I go to psychology things, they're like, why, you're a philosopher. Why are you here? So I'm kind of like the most unpopular person everywhere I go. Well, and these are all stories, again, exactly. that are running the show. Yes, totally. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's so hilarious. Yeah. Okay. The story unravels as we tell it. Um, so I would like to focus on the shattering thing. I've always felt that trauma, it was like narrative, the psyche were this sort of immense, sort of glassy, yes. colorful continuum, like menagerie thing. Yeah. Trauma's like a hammer. Yes. And I get the sense that they're shattered, that they're that there's yeah. something really that they are not themselves are not broken, of course. Like like right. your fabulous book. Oh, thank you. Unbroken <laughs> yeah. by uh, Mary Catherine McDonald, PhD, yes. coming out in March 14th, 2023. March, it's like, I think of Star Trek. It's like the space-time continuum has been yeah. interrupted. Like there's something really wrong. The disturbance in the force. Yeah, It's totally. incredible. Mm-hmm. And it's palpable. And you can taste it almost in the air. Yes. And I don't like it. No, you don't like it. And you also can't unknow it or unsee it. Like what gets revealed is not something you can compartmentalize. Get into it. Let me yeah. hear about it. The shattering, you mean? The shattering, because you talk in, I think it was in chapter two or three, about how healing from trauma is about reintegrating yeah. the trauma back into your psyche in a narrative type fashion that when you have a traumatic event, the filing cabinets in your psyche get all fucked up and everything gets put in the wrong place and everything's disorganized. And you'll yeah. say it way better than I will. 
I think the easiest way to do that is to start with like pieces of my own story. So I had a, I grew up in a, you know, Irish Catholic household. My parents were very healthy, very active, late 50s, early 60s, and then both suddenly died. And I had been raised Catholic and then went to college and was very interested in dismantling institutionalized religion. So I thought I was very sophisticated and like, you know, had it together. And Which you are. Oh, thank you. Well, I look back now and I'm like, oh, honey, like you were so naive. Believe it or not, I was naive once. Isn't that amazing? What ha- when? Just like last week. <laughs> anyway, go on. So I'm sorry to interrupt. So their death was shattering in ways that was expected, right? Like when you have a sudden death, my dad was not sick. And then he was sick for 10 days and died on Christmas morning just out of the absolute blue. So there's like the whiplash effect of this thing that I thought could never happen or at least wouldn't happen for a very long time suddenly happened. And in this cinematic way. You know, it's mm-hmm. Christmas morning. Like, are you fucking kidding? Like, sure. This is, can I swear? Sorry. Yeah, please. Okay. <laughs> but then there was also the shattering that I didn't even realize that I held a whole system of beliefs that had just been completely destroyed. So like my father was an angelic human by all accounts. Anyone who encountered him would tell you that. Mm-hmm. And I had been carrying around this belief from growing up Catholic and just being in the world that if you were a good person, bad things couldn't happen to you. And then all of a sudden he got ripped out of his life. Not only is that shattering, but now I don't know what to believe anymore. And then my mom, who had been sort of the, I call her, a, a, she's going to strike me down from wherever she is, a benevolent terrorist. She was, she was the force of the universe. She was the strongest person I knew and could be very terrible as well. She couldn't survive without my dad. And she died very soon after him. Really? Even though she was young and we, you know, we thought to be healthy. So then that's another series of belief systems. Your fairy tale got shattered. The whole universe got shattered. And it was just like, I don't know what anything means anymore. I mean, talk about stories. People are coming in and saying, oh, what a beautiful thing. Your parents couldn't live without each other. And I'm like, that's fucking terrible. That's not beautiful. I'm 24. Fck you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Um, Seriously. So to go back to the point about shattering, we do such a bad job talking about grief and trauma in our society right now. I would love to be a part of what changes that. And I think that when we talk about shattering, which is not enough anyway, we talk about it in the most simple ways. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, you don't have parents anymore. You're an orphan. Boom. That's all. That's what's shattered. And it's like, no, no, Mm -hmm. I don't know what to hope for anymore. Mm -hmm. That's a bigger, there's 22 layers of of shattering. You know, when you described it a minute ago as that sort of tapestry of glass, I'm imagining that Mm -hmm. gets cracked open. There's pieces of it that feel like they're not even related to the thing that happens that get broken. And so you're suddenly just standing there amidst all this glass and being like, okay, I have to put this back together. But I don't even know where all the pieces started. I saw this installation at the MoMA maybe 15 years ago. I don't know what the artist meant by it, but... What I took from it was it was a, I don't know if you go to the SF MoMA, but there's... I've never been, which is shocking. I love museums and I've lived here. You gotta go. Yeah, I okay. know. You walk in and the foyer is huge and it's sort of circular and you can look up, the stairs spiral up and it's really large. The installation was a car, a red car, a bright red car, and there was a chunk of it on one wall and then a chunk of it on another wall. And it almost looked like the, it looked like the car had gone off a cliff and pieces of it had just ripped asunder and and were lodged into the wall and every part you could walk up to them it was full of all these little teeny like spools of thread with spun gold like unidentifiable somewhere between computer chips and human guts and 
uh, uh, I just like sewing thread. So like just crazy, but it was like all that. It was like all this stuff was pouring out of this car that had been ripped to pieces. That was completely like, what is this? It was like someone's life had been split open. Like all the details of who they were and their all their memories and everything was sort of spilled out into the air. It was like a cross between seeing someone's literal body getting honestly, you know, split open and. Sp- splayed out everywhere and their memories and their dreams and hopes just scattered literally around the room wow is that yeah no that's that what sounds I'm, I'm obsessed with that now I yeah i don't find know it. <laughs> where it came from i don't know who did it i don't know what the fuck he was trying to say or she was trying to say but it was just like holy shit man that's stunning i yeah. teach a class on trauma every summer at the college i actually went to and it's called trauma in the troubled mind and they have the option at the end of the semester to do a paper or a creative project and i had the student build these paper mache masks that were these different kind of versions of herself and then she dropped them from the ceiling oh. and recorded the shattering and it was stunning wow yeah wow amazing so tell me a little bit about um what happens to the human brain when there's trauma and, and maybe you could give us an example of a a type of a traumatic event and how the the file system gets all screwed up and yeah let's say you get into a catastrophic car accident and you survive but there is a level of overwhelm that's going on when you're in that system that basically reprioritizes your brain function in the moment and that's an evolutionary response this is the trauma response something happens your alarm system goes off and your brain says, okay, we are in mortal danger. We've got to reprioritize function so we have a better chance at staying alive. And so unfortunately, one of the areas that gets a lot less energy and blood flow is the filing room, which is like the hippocampus, which is where you store all your long-term memories. And so your brain has a file room so that it can move about in the world with relative ease and remember things that are dangerous and which things are safe and categorize everything and also tell a story. Mm -hmm. So if I ask you a question, you can give me an answer, even if it was about something that happened 10 years ago. And so we're designed to kind of remember and code things in certain ways. But when the energy and blood flow is pulled away from the file room, we get a file back there, but it's a disorganized file. And it can be disorganized in one of a thousand ways. Each file folder has a narrative content, like beginning, middle, and end, what happened in this event, emotional content, what what did I feel in that event? And then it has meaning tags. How do I find this when I need it? So what will happen is you get a file folder back there that's disorganized. So it might have fragments of memories. It might have fragments of a narrative or pieces of a narrative that are really vivid and others that are totally obscured. Mm -hmm. You might have too much emotional content. You might not have any emotional content. The meaning tags could be wrong. Anyway, you get the point. Can you give us an example of what that might look like, how that might be experienced by somebody? So if you go back to the car accident example, one of the things that happens, if I don't know if I've been in a catastrophic car accident, I don't know if you have, and I got T-boned and I hit the, if I hadn't been wearing my seatbelt, I wouldn't have survived. I hit the windshield with such force that I cracked it with my head. Oof. You know, it was crazy. Instantly, your perception gets very weird. So time slows down or speeds up or you lose minutes, hours, whatever. And so if I go to tell the story right afterwards, I can tell you, like I was in the car, I was driving down Elm Street, I stopped at the light, I was in the hospital. And there's that whole chunk missing of Mm -hmm. what happened. It's not that I was knocked unconscious, I was Mm -hmm. conscious, Mm -hmm. but the memories aren't there. 
it's just an empty and that's actually what happened i had no memory until much later of those moments and then later sometimes moments will come back they get filled back oh really just suddenly suddenly yeah so i had a memory of the car actually like did this like it it turned a bunch Mm -hmm. and i remember the watching that happen and i remember hearing a noise and thinking like what is that noise and it was me screaming so there's that derealization that disconnection Mm -hmm. dissociative thing so the reason that happens is because if you think about the file room, like you can think about little little dudes in the back of your brain, like kind of organizing everything. Mm-hmm. Those little dudes just got called to an emergency. Got it. And so they're not there. So you get this file that isn't organized and then you're, the little dudes come back into the file room and they're like, shit, we don't know what to do with this. I see. Does it also do that to other memories that are not related to the trauma? Or just the trauma? Um, say, uh, I'm not sure what you mean. Like, if you were in a car accident, would it affect, let's say, could it scramble memories from other parts of your life? Um, that's a good question. What will definitely happen is that things that are benign will be tagged as not benign anymore. I see. And so you can go back and have memories of a time maybe you were like horsing around with your friends in the car and Mm -hmm. you'll all of a sudden look back and that will feel dangerous. I see. And is that the same thing as like if one when one gets into a car in the future, it Mm -hmm. gets tagged as this is this is really dangerous because that file from when you were screening around in a circle and screaming is is sort of floating around in your psyche and attaching itself to whatever that is involved with the car. Right. Oh, interesting. So it's like it becomes unmoored. Exactly. Oh, wow. And the little dudes in the file room don't like that. So every time they sense something that's reminiscent of that moment, they will push the the memory file up to the front of your mind and say, hey, organize this. But the problem is then your alarm system also recognizes it. So this is um, inappropriate. That's but, okay. Go for it. Um, I, I just keep thinking of the seven dwarves. The seven dwarves. Why? First of all, why is that inappropriate? Little dudes. The oh, little, the little dudes. dudes. <laughs> <laughs> like they're they're back there, you know. Like I love that. Um, like Sleepy, you know, dopey you know, Grumpy's like, like, where does this go? <laughs> That's a great way to think about that. <laughs> is I it? I don't that. know. And Happy is like, I think this is a happy memory. Snow White comes in and says, now, now, Grumpy. <laughs> It goes over there or bashful or whatever. This is dumb. I always say that I want like a Pixar movie just about memory. Like I know about Inside Out. It was wonderful. They did a great job. But I Why don't you write one? You're a writer. I don't think they accept pitches. Why don't you write one anyway? Just write one anyway. I should. It's possible that a friend of yours knows how to write too. It's possible. It's possible. (laughs) And he may have some experience screenwriting. Do you really? A little bit. Ben is an incredible writer. Oh, thank you. That's sweet of you to I'm say. Convinced. No, for real. I'm not even just saying that because you had me on your podcast, but I am, we have to get your stuff out. I appreciate that. I sent, you the, I sent you the second chapter. I know, I haven't read it yet. It's okay. I can't yeah. wait. Anyway, so what is the thing that puts the memories back where they're supposed to go? It's reintegration and re-education. And to throw in another R word is that you also need a relational home. Part of what's going on in a trauma, so we use the example of a car accident, which is something that might be pretty easy to talk to other people about because lots of people have been in a car accident and it's not really like necessarily a shameful thing. So there's not a lot of charge or stigma around it. But when you have an intense amount of overwhelm in your brain, your brain gets so overloaded. The other thing you lose access to is the part of your brain that's responsible for rational thought and language. So when you have the disorganized memory file, you need to reorganize it and fill in the pieces that don't exist or tamp down some of the emotional content. 
And often in order to do that, you actually need someone else's brain because yours will continue to get dysregulated in the exact same way every time you bring, this is the trick of trauma. Mm -hmm. Like it both calls out and needs to be organized and defies organization because whenever it comes out, you get triggered. And so your body relives instead of remembers. And so you get stuck in this feedback loop. So when we say talking to someone else, it's really critical that the other person can actually bear some of the emotions with you and attune to you so that you can sort some of that out and feel safe. So it's like an extra table space or bandwidth. Yeah. Like, hey, all they've got all these files. That yes. So the patient comes in, dumps a bunch of files on yeah. the table and says, I don't know where any of these go. Right. Or what's in them or what they mean or right. like there's post-it notes here. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? Right, right. There's, yeah. Yeah. This is kind of related patients come in and i think of this as like therapy 101 where they come in and i like it's like i'm like look you've got a garage full of boxes Mm -hmm. and it's wall to wall floor to ceiling Mm -hmm. boxes like you know those white boxes that you know with the little lids yep little bankers boxes and i'm like i'm like look this is not complicated yeah but it's going to be arduous so we're just going to do this one box at a time so let's you know what's funny I use the exact same image with my clients, except it's the attic instead of the garage. Oh. And I think like we could trip out for an hour about why we're using these two Well, the reason spaces. that I used that I came up with that one is because I started doing therapy in Marin County where I don't think is there is there's as many addicts. <laughs> <laughs> People, <laughs> it's always all these ones. It's just basement. It's all, yeah. Ranch houses. But yeah, so you need to go through, you go through the file, you figure it out, you, and, and by the way, an integrated memory, I think we get this frame on it incorrectly when we say that I, I will have integrated the memory when I don't feel anything anymore. If we go really into depth into the morning that my father died, even though it was 2005, Mm -hmm. like I will feel emotions because I pulled out a folder that had sad in it. Yeah. Like our, our memories are supposed to have emotional content. That's part of how our brain learns and how we navigate the world. And there's a lot of stigma around like, oh, if you're having an intense emotion, you must be, you are traumatized. There's something If you're having an emotion at all. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I really hate? What? We're going to talk about words for a minute. (laughs) I really fucking hate when people say I have PTSD from dot, dot, dot. And they'll say something stupid, like my dog pooped on my shoes or something. (laughs) I have PTSD from that. I don't like being the grammar police, even though I kind of do. Like when people use horrible things like uncomfortability or most favorite, I hear that a lot. (laughs) So it's just, I want to tell people to shut up when they do it. And you you have a similar thing with the word trigger. Trigger, but also I have it with PTSD as well. Would because... you would you care to address your yes. your anger Where... <laughs> around the misuse of certain words? I overheard a conversation in Starbucks once when I had first moved to LA that there was no more pumpkin spice latte syrup or whatever they used yeah. to make a pumpkin spice latte. And this girl was like, I have PTSD. I can't come back to the Starbucks. And it was like, okay, like... I want to pull people over and be like, words matter. You do not have PTSD unless you have a significant context behind that story. Yeah. But the way that you're representing it as a joke seems like that's probably not the case. To somebody who's in the field, it's it's like hearing someone use the word rape casually. Yeah. It's like, how dare you? It's like, you don't even know what PTSD looks like. Yeah, that's a really good. Um, like I had a friend with PTSD who would have, who would get uh, temporary global amnesia and yep. end up in another city. Yep, yep. Or wake up underneath a table in, in you know, yeah. in some other room of her house. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I've had clients who don't sleep. They just do the perimeter of their house all night. So you mean just check the, yeah. checking for security? Walk the perimeter, looking for, in suburbia, you know what I mean? Like oh, looking for. Oh, God. 
so it's yeah i mean it it's a real a very distressing destructive experience mm-hmm. because you you live in two times at once and everyone else is here just in the present. Well, it's a dilution of the language that a word like PTSD or trigger gets used to describe the fact that, you know, you live in the marina and you didn't get your pumpkin spice latte. Right. Talk about stories. Right. The story is under attack. You're changing the narrative here in a way that's, that's going to hurt somebody. It's like never cry wolf on a really large scale, like a global scale. Like everyone is saying PTSD. Then finally, when someone says, Hey, I've got PTSD, nobody fucking gives a shit because, Oh, well, what happened? Did you not get your pumpkin spice latte? And that's exactly what's happening. And that's what I worry about. In the history of, of the study of trauma, we've it's very episodic. Mm-hmm. And so you have these moments where everyone's studying trauma. Everyone thinks it's legitimate. We're making a lot of progress. And mm-hmm. then something like that happens. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, well, trauma's just in the air. Everyone has trauma. It's not important to talk about. Or you know, mm. therapists made up trauma and they planted the memories in their patients' minds. That was from the 80s, right? The 90s. The but, 90s. And there were still professors. So I went to BU. There were professors who told me I shouldn't study trauma because everyone knew it wasn't real. Jesus Christ. This was 2014. What was going on back then? There were some court cases where expert witnesses came on and tore apart victim stories. I don't know if there was a particular story or a percentage of stories that were proven to be false in some way. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, okay, well, now all trauma memories are false. And so we can't trust anyone who's ever been to therapy. and, Mm -hmm. and, And then therapists stopped studying trauma because if you couldn't say that you were specialized in trauma. Right, right. So, oh, triggers. The other thing, I get even more fired up about triggers because that word means something very specific neurobiologically, and we are now using it to mean I'm having an emotion. What does it mean neurobiologically? When you have a benign stimulus in your perception that brings up one of those disorganized file folders, and then your body and brain respond as if you are reliving that event without any willing, this is all intrusive and unbidden, that is a trigger. So if we go back to the car accident example, let's say the car that hit me was maroon and I'm sitting here doing the podcast with you and I notice that there's a maroon object over there. I might not even consciously be aware of that, but all of a sudden I'm starting to panic because my brain is recognized, oh no, there's a thing that might be mortally dangerous in this room. Mm -hmm. So now we have to behave as if we're in danger. Mm -hmm. And I'm just trying to sit here having a conversation with you. And now all of a sudden I'm not really in the room anymore. So there's a chemical shift. There's a chemical shift. Yeah. Yeah. Blood flow and energy. I admit I'm guilty of using the word trigger. I think we all are. And, And like, here's the thing, like, let's just decide. Let's just decide that now that word means we need a new word for what I'm talking about because when we say triggered colloquially, we're just meaning I'm having an emotion that's like mildly inconvenient. What do you think would be a good word? Um... I really like the language around reliving. My mom had a friend who used to say that there are times when we fall off the edge of language. And I think about that all the time because I'm not sure that there are words to capture what it's like to be living in two different times at the same time. I like the language of reliving because it's not really a memory. Your brain and body are tricked into being in a different time. Mm. And that's real. And sometimes that's as when we see this depicted in the media, it's typically like a veteran who hears a noise and kind of hits the floor. Right. So is this also the disorganized piece where it's like you're reliving because the the file hasn't found its spot? Yeah. 
So the file guy just said, oh, there's maroon. That I think that maroon was dangerous. Let me throw it to the front of your mind. I see. But then your fear center is like, no, that's dangerous. We are in danger. Let's kick on the emergency system. That's so interesting. Like the gnome, that's the file. He, he does like, I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm, He's I'm, trying to be helpful. I'm just like, I'm, I'm trying to picture the different gnomes and their different jobs. <laughs> Which is just so bad. Of no, being, it's not bad. I love it. You've got the trigger gnome. You've got the PTSD gnome. You've got the, <laughs> I'm so sorry, but I have to do this. You've got the, uh, what else? What other gnomes would there be? Well, the, I think there'd be a bunch of trigger gnomes. Bunch of trigger gnomes. Because there'd be like the gnomes that are responsible for the disorganized files. Because we all have them. Like this is why the, you know, the subtitle of the book is the trauma response is never wrong. Those little dudes, they're well-meaning. Mm-hmm. They're simply trying to get that file to right. a place where you can recognize now what was dangerous and what wasn't and protect yourself have you seen people you work with really stop having those trauma responses after things get organized like they really they'll see the maroon car and they'll be like okay it was just a maroon car for sure because so this goes so we talked about reintegration re-education is when you you organize the memory file and then over time you learn how to tag things appropriately again Mm -hmm. so that you're not tagging benign stimulus as danger because the whole system is built so that you can respond to threat and the thing that goes wrong is that we start thinking that things are threat that are not threatening all you have to do is recalibrate the system like it's not actually rocket science and we know how to do it that's one of the things that's so infuriating because we're not doing it we're Mm -hmm. not teaching it we're not giving people tools we need to peel away some of the shame because people are very ashamed that they have a trauma response but i've absolutely seen clients have a trigger become more much more neutral and certainly manageable wow and that's also true within relationships i see couples Mm -hmm. as well and a lot of our triggers are interrelational Mm -hmm. and that can be a really powerful moment of growth for a couple when you can pull a trigger out into the light Mm -hmm. and figure out a different way to respond to it instead of having a catastrophic fight that ends your relationship yeah i see that a lot in uh, couples where um, addiction is an issue yeah, I bet. And the non-addicted spouse has all these stories in their head and all these, I guess, triggers around, you know, every time their spouse goes to the bathroom, they'll check under the toilet seat to make sure they didn't hide something. And you've got to dispel all these things and have them talk through and, and yeah. like, you know, this is their reality. And Do you think it's easier for an addict to be with someone who, obviously, like someone who's in recovery, to be with someone who has had experience with addiction themselves? No idea. No idea. I really don't because a lot of times, you know, you'll have married couples. One of them will become addicted to substances in the marriage or was the whole time and it got worse. Yeah. You know, honestly, this is, this is, this is the better answer. The psychological and emotional acumen and maturity it takes to be in a relationship is untouched by whether or not you are an addict. Mm -hmm. Anyway, one other word that MC doesn't like is the word health. which I think was really hilarious. And I use the word health and she comes at me like, health is a stupid word. And I you looked at you him were like, using it in a critical way too. That's why I wasn't, I wasn't attacking you. No, no, hold, let me finish my little okay, joke. I'm like, I looked over like, wait a minute. I'm the one who's supposed to be saying that kind of shit. <laughs> Cause I'm usually the one who is jumping up and down about whatever, something silly and small, yep. you know, and being a big fat contrarian for no reason, <laughs> just, cause it's fun. just cause it's fun. And I'm like, who is this leprechaun person? <laughs> Shouting me down for using something like health. This is like my soul sister. What's going on? What's this is, this makes no sense. Stop it immediately. You're you're stealing my thunder. So why do you hate the word health, Mary Catherine McDonald, it's, PhD? It, 
<laughs> it's not the word health itself. It's the way that we use it. It's become like a completely empty modifier where people are like, oh, I'm really focused on my health. Like, what the fuck does that mean? Because for one person, that could mean <laughs> I've got things really dialed in. I care mm -hmm. a lot about nutrition. I make sure to move my body. I'm doing some emotional work. Like, yeah. all, you know, and for someone else, it could be, well, I'm not, I didn't get high today. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> you know, like, and I think that we are also wielding it as, as judgment of each other. And often th there are huge aspects of our health that are not up to us. Yeah. Right. Like I have celiac disease. What a pain in the ass. That's right. not my choice. Right. It's being used in a really strange way. I buy it's, that. It's supposed to be virtuous. Like, I, yeah, I care about health. You know what I hate is the phrase self-care. For sure. <laughs> like, what do you mean? You wiped your ass today? You right. took care of yourself? Right. Like, right. I mean, I use it, unfortunately, because it's so in fashion, but I hate it. What could we replace it with? I don't know. Don't do stupid stuff. Right. I don't know. Go get an ice cream. I don't, I don't know. I have no idea. I think we do another virtue signaling thing there where we're like, oh, I've, I've got my self-care dialed in. But you can be doing like really wildly unhealthy things to yourself in the to, name of self-care. What, what does it mean to dial in, by the way? Just like I know, but why? Why that? What dial? That? Like dial? What is it? Is it a throwback to like those old phones where you dial someone in? I always think of like calibrating something. Like you got a bunch of knobs. This is the thing. Like some in. some fucker somewhere thought of that <laughs> and said, "I've got this dialed in." Everyone went, "Oh, that's kind of cool sounding." <laughs> there was a moment in history yeah. where some human being was just like with a vendetta against sanity. <laughs> <laughs> thought of that fucking phrase and used it in a sentence in front of people. You know why I think I started using it is because I was trying to get away from alignment, which is another weird social media word that took off. But then it was, you know, chakras and what I don't oh, know. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> crystals. Crystals, exactly. Right? Do you have crystals? No. Why not? I don't know anything you about live in, You live in Marin, though. I know. You don't have any crystals? I don't have any crystals. There's going to be a crystal tax. I know. <laughs> against you They're going to send me crystals. Well, this is what I'm... There's something we're pointing out here, which is like, there's like a... There's like an I'm better than you quality to all of this. It's pretentious garbage. It's trying to be something you're not. Yeah. And subjugating language, wielding language in a way that yeah. makes you think, I don't know. That you're better than everybody. That that you are that you get to opt out of this human suffering. Yeah. The, and the self-care thing bothers me too because it sounds so fluffy. I don't know if you ever have these days where you like have to talk yourself into the shower. <laughs> yeah. Do you know? <laughs> like... You know, when someone asks, do you have your self-care dialed in or whatever? I'm like, I mean, I bathe. Well, the thing is, when someone asks me that, I know that they're actually ironically not dialed in on anything in their whole lives. Your self-care is not working at all, buddy, if you're going to have to say that. Right, right. <laughs> and I think we also, we I'm don't think so about cynical. it in terms of the toolbox, which yeah. we need to. Yeah. Because self-care sometimes is going to look like letting yourself lie on the floor. Self-care is sometimes going to look like making yourself go for a walk. Like, yeah. How do you, you, you work with a lot of clients who mm -hmm. have a lot of really serious, serious issues. Yeah. Uh, people always ask me as a therapist, you know, Ben, how do you handle it? Uh, yeah. I have a particular gift for not holding other people's stuff. Yeah. I don't know how I do that, yeah. but I, do, I, I care. I do my job, but yeah. when I'm done, I'm done. How, how do you manage that? The epilogue is the, my favorite part of the book because I wrote it about my dad. I think I'm just not afraid of the dark. And the reason for that is because my dad taught me very early on that when you encounter the dark, you sit with it until the light starts to filter in because it mm. always does. And that may sound trite, but I really think that that is true. Mm. 
I feel more comfortable in the dark than not. I think I get that question a lot. Like you're in the darkness all the time. They nicknamed me Dr. Sunshine, like sarcastically at my Mm -hmm. first teaching job because I was always studying, researching something really gnarly. I really think that's where we find the light is in the darkness. I mean, I've had clients where it gets to me sometimes. What do you do when it gets to you? I let it roll through. I had a client recently when I had to cancel the next session and just sit on the bathroom floor. Hmm. That's super rare, but mm-hmm. then you let it roll through. Like, Can you say more about rolling through as a way of dealing with trauma? Yeah. One of the things I think we do when we have inconvenient emotions, whatever we're going to call them, triggers or not, is we go to war with them and we try to keep them at bay. And it's sort of like trying to keep a balloon underwater. The mm-hmm. more force you exert trying to push it down, the more the thing is going to try to blow up. Yeah. My thing with that is like, it's like you, a, a wild animal that's in a cage and the yeah. cage, you're, you're, you're making the cage smaller and smaller yes. and the wild animal is going to get crazier and Absolutely. crazier. And it's going to rip the bars apart and yeah. it's going to do things that shouldn't be possible for that being to do. I try, and this is a daily minute by minute practice. I by no means have this like figured out, mm-hmm. but when I notice that there's an emotion, I try to let it happen because emotions, we, I don't think we think of this. We think of emotions as these like things we can opt into or opt out of. They're like mm-hmm. up here floating in the air. Mm -hmm. But they're biological events and they have a natural beginning, middle and end. And if we can go through them, then they will release their hold on us. If we try to manage them Mm -hmm. and compartmentalize them, which, by the way, is completely 100 percent how I lived my life until my parents died. I called the therapist about six months after my dad died and I said, I have had panic my whole life. I've been able to manage it. It's now getting in the way of work. This is unacceptable. I think that given about six or 12 sessions, we should be able to figure that out. Oh. And my therapist was like, ha, 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 <laughs> like, no, mm-hmm. that's not how this works, honey. And thankfully worked with me for four years and then I kept, I'm still in therapy. What can you tell other people about letting things roll through them? Let's say, you know, you're walking along in life and your dog dies or somebody in your family is sick mm-hmm. or you lose your job. It hits you like, you know, a big black wave. Noticing that the emotion has arisen I like to think of Rumi's poem, The Guest House, because he talks about like emotions that come to the door. And so it's sort of like an arrival of like an aunt that you like kind of hate, but who shows up with their suitcases and you're okay. like, shit, here we go. You don't have to like it, right? You don't have to be happy that that aunt has showed up at your door, but she showed up at your door and she put her suitcases in the living room and she's going to be there for a little while. And so what is that going to look like for you? Can you let yourself cry? Can you let yourself be angry? Mm -hmm. Do you feel like journaling about it would be helpful? I know that sounds so cliche, but writing is so powerful. No, it doesn't sound cliche at all. And I think like just saying, when I encounter this emotion, instead of going to war, I will let it sit here with me. I will invite it to the table. I will say, what do you have to say? Mm-hmm. What do you have to offer? When I, I had a really serious yoga practice for a couple of years, and every single time I was in Shavasana at the end of class, I would cry. Really? Every class. And I went every day. And at one point, I was I was really fighting with, with myself. Like, what the fuck, dude? Like, when are you going to stop grieving? Mm-hmm. And um, I one day just sort of pictured that, like, okay, I'm in this little canoe, and I'm lying flat in the canoe, and I'm in an ocean, and the ocean is grief. And That's gorgeous. I can, like, dip my hand into it, and there's the ocean. And sometimes it rocks the boat, but this is just where I am. I don't always like it when it comes through. Sometimes it comes through inconveniently. It came through yesterday. I cried like half the day. Hmm. 
I think I just try to let it try to let it be. I think if you can also be there's some pain management kind of tools that you can use where if you can notice that it's there and notice how it changes, then you can start to feel some motion in the emotion, which makes it feel like it's going to maybe end at some Mm -hmm. point. Like, okay, so it feels like tightness in your chest right now. Does it feel any release when you cry? It feels like like it's going to strangle you. Do you feel any release in a minute? That kind of stuff. Mm hmm. And I think there's also a lot you can do somatically to kind of get your nervous system to calm down a little bit. So when I'm panicking, I'll put ice on my chest or try to breathe a little bit. Say more about de-escalation tools. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a bunch of them in the book, though we don't have any control over the fact that we have these default trauma responses. We do have a say um, and can intervene once, once the system is off and running. And so when you're in a situation where you have what is a benign situation, but has been coded by your body as danger, there's a lot you can do to intervene in that process once it starts. And you can break those interventions down into top-down regulation and bottom-up regulation. What does that mean? So top-down regulation is when you use your brain to reprioritize blood flow and electrical activity and then basically turn the alarm system off. It's sort of the equivalent of you have to have a smoke alarm in your house, but if it's too close to the kitchen or the shower, it will Mm -hmm. go off when there's steam or you're cooking bacon. And so the answer isn't throw away the alarm. The answer Mm -hmm. is recalibrate it in some way that works. Give me an example. So one of the best studied methods of top-down regulation is actually playing Tetris because so if the smoke alarm is is your amygdala, your fear center, which is in the center of your brain, it's pulling tons of uh, energy away from your hippocampus we talked about before, but also your prefrontal cortex, which Mm -hmm. I mentioned, but not by name. That's the rational part of your brain. And playing a game like Tetris makes a very heavy bid on your prefrontal cortex which sits right behind your visual cortex. When you're playing Tetris, which if you don't know that game is a puzzle game where like it gets faster, the better you are. Mm-hmm. So it makes this continuous bid on your visual cortex and forces blood flow and electrical activity back into your rational mind mm. and away from the fear center. So top down basically means the mind. Yeah, you're manipulating your brain by what you do. So if you think about actually the pandemic, we all immediately without knowing this at all took up hobbies that occupied our prefrontal cortex and part of that was about like we had a lot of weird time on our hands but another part of it was that we were trying to regulate and so when you're baking and when you're learning an instrument or a language all of these things require a lot of input into your prefrontal cortex and Mm. when you're focused on those things you can't be afraid in the same way because you don't have the energy going to your fear center so that kind of stuff would be activities yep of whatever kind distraction yep yeah anything that you find significantly distracting So Tetris, you can do art projects, talking to other people, watching mysteries, like Mm -hmm. anything that that distracts you sufficiently, shopping, you know, like a lot of things that are visually interesting and Mm -hmm. new. And then bottom up regulation is going to do the same thing. But instead of manipulating the brain flow, you're manipulating what's going on in your body. And the best way to do that is to stimulate the vagus nerve, which is responsible for the parasympathetic nervous response or the rest and digest response. The parachute nerve. The parachute nerve. Exactly. The, the one that, that, that slows you down. Yeah, exactly. Did yeah. I tell you that or did you, you do that You too? told me that. Yeah. So the sympathetic is... Is activation. Activation and parasympathetic is... is deactivation. Yeah. And so what are some things people could do for that? Deep belly breathing, diaphragmatic breathing mm-hmm. is uh, one of the best ways that you can activate the vagus nerve because it has a bunch of nerve endings right in front of your diaphragm. Okay. So if you push your belly out, this mm-hmm. is also sometimes why people feel calm after they have a big meal because your vagus nerve is being stimulated to help you digest. And that was the ice on the chest. Well, that's a bottom 
that's a yep okay yep ice on your chest will also um do that the other space that your vagus nerve has the most nerve endings is in the back of your throat so chanting um singing voo <laughs> singing voo yeah so if you if we do that right now you can voo. feel it voo. voo yeah i can feel voo i feel <laughs> So you feel that the, the um, vibrations in the back of your throat and then um, gargling is one of the ways that they talk about when you're really stuck. I tried that. Did it not work? No, but I'll try it again. Wait, like if you were panicking? What was no, happening? I wasn't panicking. I, I just at night I get my brain tends to get really, really active at about 11 p.m. Speaking of stories, like I start all these narratives start spinning in my head about yeah. I'll just pick a random situation with a patient or with a family member or with a friend and yeah. I'll make something up. And like, what if I were in this argument? Right. And oh, then I'm wow. in this fucking argument with this person that sometimes doesn't even exist. Yeah. And I'm just, I just get really, really, really wound up and I can't come down. And were you really, strategizing when you were a kid going to bed? Strategizing? Yeah. The what next do you mean? day, school, family shit. Like, I just had this vision of you, like, in your room at night. This was like the only time you had to, like, be totally alone and strategize. No. Uh, I mean, if I had to get all Jungian and Freudian and whatever on it, I would say that at night I was probably incredibly lonely and afraid. Mm -hmm. I don't think I felt protected or safe yeah those are also words i hate but i just think that that it was when the anxiety when i was anxious yeah. Yeah. yeah about stuff so you strategize to protect yourself because you're like if i'm anxious if i think about all these possible maybe situations then i'll know how to be in the world entirely possible i mean i was also um a fat kid with no social skills so mm -hmm. i was terrified of what was waiting for me the next day yeah without knowing that I was terrified because for me it was just it was normal you totally know? it's just life yeah it was just yeah. life so at night yeah I get really um oof. so I've been I think what's been helping me actually is reading at night reading yeah. is really helpful well that's another I mean that's top-down regulation because yeah. you're, you're occupying your two parts of your brain actually you're occupying the prefrontal cortex and also the hope circuit because it takes a certain amount of imagination what, what is the hope circuit the hope circuit is kind of a cheesily named set of structures in the brain that's responsible for imagination future planning but the hope circuit is counterposed with the fear circuit and so it can't be online at the same time and so if you're reading or you're watching something that's really gripping you are imagining the story in some way you're mm -hmm. involved with it in, in an imaginary way so your hope circuit is flipped on your fear circuit can't be online fascinating and i think if you kind of reverse engineer that into evolutionary biology like if you're in danger you're not going to be sitting there reading a book and so your brain and body get the cue after like 20 or 40 minutes of reading like oh we're actually safe what's the most useful thing you know about stress as far as dealing with it yeah so it's funny because sometimes i give like presentations on stress and people are like oh but you're a trauma expert and i'm like what's the s in ptsd <laughs> that's funny stress. So, so we can talk about stress all you want that's hilarious it is it is because what's happening in the trauma response is that the stress response system is getting activated and so um, we don't even have to talk about ptsd everything that i'm talking about all the tools that i ever talk about also help with stress the single most helpful thing that i know about stress is once the system is kicked off it's a cycle and if you can complete the stress cycle, you will feel better. What does that mean, the stress cycle? So when we talk about the fear center, when the amygdala goes off, when the smoke alarm goes off, I talked way earlier about reprioritizing brain function, right? Mm -hmm. The reason that that happens is because the signal gets sent to the body that we're in danger. And so the body responds by releasing stress hormones into the system mm -hmm. to make you more likely to survive. 
when you think about that from an evolutionary perspective, that's great. Like, so you have all these stress hormones. Now you can move faster than before. Your muscles are ready to go, even if you were sitting down, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But what happens with us is that we feel all the stress and then we sit and marinate in the stress hormones instead of doing anything with it. Is this related to the complex PTSD where you're just sort of in a constant state of fragmented fucked upness so that yeah. you're, you're just always stressed because you're always in those states from when you were young? Yeah. I have a theory that's like I have not talked about about complex PTSD. Okay. That's really quick. Go ahead, please. <laughs> the reason that there is a difference between simple and complex trauma is because clinicians need to know what the source of the injury is. Okay. And the reason clinicians need to know the source of the injury is because sometimes certain interventions will be used in a certain order, right? So if you show up at the emergency room with appendicitis versus something else, like that's information that the doctors need to know. Simple trauma just has always meant a singular event. Complex trauma is an event that has unfolded over a period of time. So that could be an abusive relationship. It could be your childhood. It could be a deployment, a nine-month deployment, any of these things. And people sometimes are like, how come you're not talking enough about CPTSD, complex PTSD? Mm-hmm. And it's because I think all PTSD is CPTSD. Say more. There's an interesting temporal layer when we talk about trauma, right? So everything that we talked about, the even the example of the car accident, right? The normal structures of time that everyone else is living in mm-hmm. get exploded. And you end up, even though you had a singular traumatic event, reliving it over and over and over again until you get it integrated. And so... There is no such thing as a singular trauma because unless you heal it right away, and that does happen sometimes. It's like an echo. Exactly. It's going to continue to kind of fold through. I'm, I'm picturing like when you're standing in a hotel looking in the mirror and the mirror, like you can see like 47 different versions of yourself. It's like that. And I don't mean to say that to minimize, this is controversial, to minimize CPTSD. But what we've taken into society, which is completely scientifically false, mm-hmm. is the idea that if you have complex PTSD, you're fucked. And it's not at all true. I hear it all the time. And people are saying that CPTSD is a personality disorder and that it's uncurable and all this stuff. And it's personality disorder. Yeah, there's a by definition, it's not. I know, but That's people ridiculous. are saying that there is no such thing as BPD, but borderline personality disorder, that it's all CPTSD, which is not. That's absolute, complete fucking bullshit. Completely. <laughs> I can 100% attest to that. Yeah. Um, anyway, I forgot why we started talking about Well, that. we were talking about stress, and I guess I was curious about Oh, complex what... PTSD. So and... when you have, like, let's say you had a, a really abusive childhood, and so you end up in this sort of chronic state of hypervigilance that's mm-hmm. basically your default wiring. That is going to require a different set of tools executed in a different order than if you had a car accident. It doesn't mean you're stuck in fight or flight forever. Mm-hmm. It means that you've got to reprogram your system. And again, that is possible. The more we learn about the brain and the nervous system, the more we learn how malleable it is. How do people do that? Again, it's reintegration, reeducation, mm-hmm. and finding a relational home. Let's say like I get wound up at 11 p.m. Yeah. What, what do I do? about that i would want to work on a bunch of different levels at the same time Mm -hmm. so i would want to go into childhood and think about like what it was like at 11 p.m what was that happening what memories come up Mm -hmm. could you do some emdr related to that Mm -hmm. eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is one of the ways you can help work with the memory files in the brain to Mm -hmm. reorganize them 
And then I would also want to know like what your day looks like, what the structure is and what you can do, what works for your nervous system when you're feeling activated. So when I work with clients, I like to work on a, in a kind of toolbox mentality where instead of finding the one modality or the one thing that's going to fix it, how loaded can we get your toolbox? How many things can you possibly do so that you can attack this issue Mm -hmm. head on? Because Mm -hmm. if you're going to build a house, you're not just going to go buy a hammer. Certainly not. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need a whole bunch of shit. And so I would want to know what works for your nervous system. Like mm-hmm. you, Ben, what works to de-escalate you when you're feeling activated mm-hmm. and then get a whole bunch of tools that work on those same lines and try to get your nervous system to feel safe because that's what's happening. Your nervous system is coding 11 p.m. as danger. Mm. And so we have to re-educate your nervous system and recalibrate it to learn that it's safe. And that's a long process. Like rewiring takes a long time and a lot of practice. Mm-hmm. Because you're working against a default system. Right. One of the reasons why alternative therapies like psilocybin and things are being used is because they shake up the default system. Yeah, they system. apparently increase neuroplasticity. Yeah. That's what the guy from the Uberman lab was talking yeah. about. Yeah. If I could just summarize his all of his life's work into like one sentence would be like, <laughs> increase neuroplasticity and all will be well. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and MDMA seems to do that. Yep. The ketamine, ketamine does can, that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Just strikes me so, it's so similar to like massage and all the body work stuff where mm-hmm. the body gets locked up around yep. an injury. Oh yeah, totally. It's the same shit, man. Yeah, yeah. But, Oh, and like I think that's a great thing too because like you have to sometimes teach your muscles to relax. Yeah. Because they get stuck. Uh, maybe that's why jujitsu. One of the reasons I like jujitsu so much is that it allows my muscles to relax. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because I get really tense. Yep. They um, did a, Bessel van der Kolk and David Emerson, who I think is actually out here, did a study on yoga and PTSD. And they talked about how yoga teaches you to come home to your body, that your body is a safe place. And I love that language because mm-hmm. I think most of us don't feel like usually the phrase safe place is used in really an annoying annoying way and that's actually way better (laughs) yeah right that that your body is the safe place right yeah and that we we get disconnected from that another term various reasons is there anything uh do you want to talk about your book a little bit do you want to plug anything do you want to talk about your coaching business i mean i would love for people to go out and get the book it comes out march 14th it's available on there's an audiobook version and a kindle version and a paperback version and it gives the rundown of kind of everything that I want everyone to know about trauma, your nervous system, and a whole bunch of tools. Mm-hmm. And there's also a little bit of my story mixed in there as well. So. And by the way, MC is also a phenomenal writer. Oh, um, and it's especially evident when she's writing about her personal stuff. Oh, thank you. Ben it's... said I should write a memoir. I'm freaked out by this. Yeah. But yeah, check out the book. I have, um, I'm also on Instagram at mc.phd. I have a website, alchemycoaching.life. And the name of the book, one more time. Is Unbroken. The trauma response is never wrong. It comes out with Sounds True Publishing on March 14th. Aren't you excited? I'm excited. To become famous? I don't think I'm going to be You're going to be wildly <laughs> no, I famous. Don't Are you going to go on book tours and stuff? No, they don't really do that anymore. They don't do that anymore? No. Oh, that's stupid. I mean, you can do it if you want, but I didn't really see, you know, nobody knows me. I don't. Yeah, no one cares. Yeah. I just, <laughs> but I do like, the, it's funny because people are like, oh, you're, you know, they, people talk about fame as if that's the goal, but it isn't. Like, I have no interest in fame whatsoever. What mm-hmm. I am interested in is everyone getting their hands on this book because I think it will be helpful. Okay. We have a little extra time. Um, but that was a really good interview. So I don't know what else to add. <sighs> How you been? <laughs> you're sitting on my couch. <laughs> Oh, are we gonna do therapy? I, yeah, this is my this is my father's chair. This is dangerous. Is it really? Yeah, he did therapy in this chair for twenty years, for, for like forty shit. years. Probably. How many times has it been reupholstered? Uh, probably none. 
Oh, man. I have a super, I used to, it's gone, but I had a very similar chair that was my mom's. It was red. It was an armchair, wing chair. Yeah, I don't know. There's these weird, like it's the, the stool thing, this thing here. Yeah. It's worn in, it's, look at this. <clears throat> it's worn. Oh, like here. And I don't know why. Oh, weird. Like, did he, did he sit like this? Oh, funny. Like, what was going on? Did he, how, when did he pass away? Like, I don't know, 15 years ago. Oh, wow. He died of being Jewish. He died being Jewish. He died of being Jewish. What does that mean? He, means he, <laughs> he was really anxious about his heart. Oh. And um, there was nothing wrong with his heart. And this cardiologist was like, you have the healthiest heart ever. And he started passing out because he was so worried about his fucking heart. Holy shit. At least that, that's, no, I don't know. I don't quite don't, get it. Yeah, but there yeah, was yeah. no heart attack. There's yeah. no nothing. He just yeah it was weird how old were you uh 15 years ago how old was i 30 something 32 33 what was that like were you close not really he wasn't close to anybody mm. i mean he was um it was weird it was um i mean our relationship gets better every year mm. which is really strange yeah i mean it was traumatic but i i don't know i had all these really vivid dreams about him my whole mm -hmm. conception of death completely changed oh wow yeah like i I am I'm I no longer think that death is the end. Yeah, same. I'm a hundred percent convinced, and I understand that that's a very convenient thing. Like, oh, you know. No, but when you see it, it's like, it's not. It's just a. It's a. It's a step, man. Yeah. The one of the most comforting things my students used to say that I was scaring them when I talked about this. One of the most comforting things that I've ever experienced was my, my parents' death because you see that they are gone. Mm-hmm. And you see that there's a huge difference between the body and the person. Yeah. It is another thing. This is, you're, you're a scientist. You'll appreciate this, or maybe you won't. But <laughs> one of the ways that I work with, with uh, grief and loss with my patients yeah. is that I say, look, um, this is a little bit abstract, but bear with me. I say to them, and this is probably not exactly correct. A neuroscientist would probably tell me, no, you're full of shit, but fuck him or her. <laughs> um, the experience that you have with somebody is literally in your brain. Like you see them, you hear them, but it's translated and it's filtered into your head, which yep. is kind of a semantic argument. But the point is, is that everything that is a person that you know of them is literally in your With head him. in the form yep. of little electrical impulses. Yep. There is no reason that you cannot talk to that person. 100%. They are in your fucking head. Yep. As much as they were in the world, they were in your head at yep. this because there was no difference. You're not actually seeing anything. Totally. Right? There's a uh, an early modern philosopher who made that same argument. He oh, yeah? That basically like, you who, have is the, who is this genius? Leibniz. <laughs> he was Jewish. <laughs> of course he was. <laughs> yeah, he said there's like little, I mean, he was writing in early modern times, so he obviously didn't say it like this, but there's little versions of people in your head. Talk about like identity and narrative. Yeah. Right? Like you, there are versions of you that exist in other people yeah. that may or may not be accurate. Do you ever talk to your parents? Yeah, all the time. Man, I talk to my dad constantly. Yeah. And all my th old therapist, all the time. cantankerous fuck. He you, oh, your old therapist, really? Yeah, well, I, I was, he was my therapist for like 30 years almost. Oh, shit. Yeah, he died at 97. Oh, shit. Yeah. How long ago? Uh, 2017. That's huge loss. Yeah, well, he kind of was, he was so out of his mind towards the end that it was not really like... Still though, yeah. Yeah, it was like a decline, and yeah. it was the point where I wasn't even really seeing him because it was just so he was so it wasn't him anymore. It was yeah. someone else, you know. It was so he was so crazy at the end. But uh, anyway, yeah. So we argue constantly. 
about things and it's like he is there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, I think death is a good place to end the conversation. It is a good place to end the it's conversation. It's so light and happy. <laughs> Mary Catherine McDonald, PhD, thank you for coming in. Thank you so much. This was so delightful. The time it, literally flew. It, it did not literally flew. It figuratively. <laughs> figuratively flew. flew. Let's, let's get that Grammar clear police. once and for all. <laughs> figuratively. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. Should you wish to be a guest on my show, you can drop me a line at benjaminrusick at gmail.com. All relevant information regarding the fabulous Mary Catherine McDonald PhD will be available in the program notes. Thanks again and tune in next time.